You are listening to a sermon podcast from Kingdom City. We pray that over the next few moments, you will be blessed, equipped, and empowered to bring the reality of God to your world. I love the fact that we as a church here at Kingdom City are speaking this month particularly with an emphasis around this whole subject of the kingdom of God. You know, it's the most powerful um, theme or topic in the whole of the Gospels. Christ himself spoke about the kingdom more than any other subject. The amazing thing about the kingdom of God and his focus upon it is, I guess I refer to it like if a Uh, A songwriter had a favorite song or an artist had a favorite painting. Maybe a chef had a favorite dish. Christ's favorite topic to speak about was the kingdom of God because everything else is framed within that subject. He started it when he spoke about repent with the kingdom of God is at hand. He finished it after the resurrection. We're told in uh, the book of um, Acts chapter 1, that Luke, writing to Theophilus, he said how Jesus, after he suffered and was resurrected, appeared to his disciples for 40 days and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. But the subject of our series is not simply the kingdom of God, it's the king and I, because this is an internal kingdom. This is a kingdom that is within us. A lot of people say, well, what is the kingdom of God? Is that simply church? Or is that eternity? Is that life after death? Uh, Is that where some geographical outbreak of revival's taken place? All of those elements contain a measure of the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is greater than that. The church has a history of 2,000 years. The kingdom of God has a history of eternity backwards and eternity forwards. Even the church itself, this wonderful, wonderful vehicle of the kingdom, this expression of the kingdom on earth is framed in the understanding of the kingdom itself. You know, the kingdom, it's an interesting word because today as we speak about the king and I, we recognize and identify that this kingdom is within us. It has the ability to be contained, expressed and reside within you. The topics we're speaking about over these weeks are not simply theological teaching or training. It's not even just simply an aspect of an awareness. It's this realization that this kingdom is so important that it is within us and can determine literally the fruitfulness, purposefulness, fulfillment, and success of our life and those around us. We're told in Matthew chapter 6 to seek First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, his right order of doing things, and everything else will be added to us. I like to paraphrase, seek ye first the kingdom as the pursuit of the reign of God in every area of our life, or even in every day life. You know, the term kingdom although it's the greatest subject that Christ spoke about, is often the least understood by us as Christians. We love to focus on the subsets and think about faith and think about healing and think about prayer and all these elements, which is just so vital. But the major frame around all those subjects, we're like, well, what is the kingdom? The clue is often given even in the language of the Bible, right back from the Old Testament to the New Testament. 
In the New Testament, the term that's used for kingdom is balasia. In the Old Testament, it's malkuth or malkutha. It literally means the reign of another. It means the realm of a king's sovereignty. It means a place where one is actually submitted willingly to the will of another. And I can't think of a greater king to submit to. No natural earthly political party or philosophy. No individual, no matter how great their their intentionality is in the realm, whether it's in the kingdom of Tonga or in the United Kingdom of England, although we honor the earthly kings, it is just a, a grain of sand on the beach of eternity in comparison to the quality of the king in which we serve. You know, in the most simplest term, it's really saying like the kingdom of God is where his will is being done, his intentions are being followed, where willingly those who have submitted themselves to him are allowing his influence in their life to bring the outcomes that he desires. But today, I want to talk to you about a tale of two gardens, both representing the kingdom of God, if we see on the screen. One is where the kingdom was lost, and then the other is where the kingdom was recovered or restored. A tale of two gardens. And I guess the question that I would ask is, which garden do you spend most of your time in? Which garden can you relate to the most? Where the kingdom was lost and where the kingdom was restored or recovered. We talk about a lost kingdom. And yet we're saying, well, hang on, if that's the rule and reign of God, is he not sovereign? Is he not omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present? Surely, surely God has not lost his lordship or his sovereignty over anything. Well, the truth is his sovereignty will never change. But the kingdom of God is defined by that which is willingly submitted to his lordship. And in that context, in the history of mankind, there is a definitive moment where one could actually say the kingdom or a portion of it was in fact lost. I'm going to take you back to the very first garden. You'll know that God, when he created Adam and Eve, he created them. He determined out of his own heart that he wanted to have image bearers. Let's make man in our own image. And not only did he make them in his own image in nature and character, but he also gave them the authority as image bearers to have kingdom over this earth. He set mankind upon this earth. He blessed them. He spoke to them. He said, this is your dominion. Rule it. Subdue it. He created it, he gave mankind a mandate of being fruitful, of realizing the potential, of accomplishing everything he intended, placed them into that garden, the first garden. And he said, mankind, this is your kingdom. This is your domain. Under me, you have dominion. Under me, you have authority. We're even told in the Psalms that it says in Psalm 8, Speaking of mankind, you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hand. You put all things under his feet. And then it goes on to list all the elements of creation. God's intention as the king was to have the king and I. 
that under his lordship, under his authority, under relationship and connection with the living God, he said, I I, want to give you, mankind, dominion. And then he added the fine print. He added a caveat. He said, oh, there's only one thing that's excluded from your dominion, man. You can have dominion over this planet. You can have dominion. You can develop it. You can have freedom. See, a lot of people say, Martin, with with the lordship of Jesus and submitting your life to God, isn't that just robotic that we have to, oh, God, you know, I'm under your control. No, no, you've got to understand that under that dominion, he says, I give you dominion. I give you the freedom to express. I, I, I lead you and tell you, and I give you the values. Now you go and express that. You develop it. You realize it's potential. But oh no, he says there's one thing. There's one thing. He says that I won't give you dominion over. I won't allow you to control the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree. It's just a tree, it's in a garden. You've probably seen, like we even see on the images we saw earlier, this picture of an apple. By the way, the Bible does not refer to the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as being a mangosteen, a pineapple, a banana, or an apple. It just says the fruit, the produce, what comes from that tree. And he says to mankind, he says, you can have control over everything. You can determine this and realize its potential, shape it, influence, allow your creativity, your innovation to express. That's why within the heart of every single human being on this planet is a desire as an image bearer to create. You put a little child on the beach, you come back a few minutes later, there's a sandcastle. You put a couple of children in a field and you come back a little bit later and out of the daisies and the flowers, jewelry has been created. It's innate within the heart of every person. He says you can create, you can develop, you can realize potential, you can control everything, as in you can be responsible for, determine and decide everything except one thing. You don't touch. You do not touch. You do not control the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because the day in which you do that, you shall surely die. And everyone goes, die? The death sentence? But hang on, didn't Eve and Adam, Ethan, they didn't die. The term death, biblically, is not a term of annihilation. That's the lie of this world. That's the lie of, of, of the atheists and the agnostics who'd like you to think that life just has a start and a finish and then it's all just black screen. No, no, the word death means to be separated from. Yeah. When we die, it's the separation of our spirit from our body. When man died on that day, they seized control of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were separated from God. They were separated from dominion. They were separated from life itself. Don't control. Don't seize. Don't take lordship over the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this is where our English language starts to mess with our head. Because we go, well, I know what good and evil is. And I know what knowledge is. Knowledge is information. It's understanding. Ah, A plus B, 1 plus 2 equals. So what God's saying is, I don't want you to know about what's good and bad. As if he wanted us to be naive and innocent. If that was the case, he wouldn't have needed to include the term good. Come on, think about the logic. If he wanted to keep mankind unaware of naughty things, He'd have just said, hey, do not touch the tree of the knowledge of evil. Why would he not want you to know about good? 
Well, the simple answer is the term knowledge there does not mean information. It doesn't mean awareness. The term knowledge, they are, literally means to judge, to determine, to decide, to discriminate. You will not touch the tree of deciding, judging, determining what is good and evil. In other words, God said, I'll let you control everything, determine everything, rule over everything, but there's one thing I will not surrender to mankind or any other being is the determination of what is right and wrong, what should be done and what should not be done. And the day that you take control of that and become the Lord of deciding what's right and wrong is the day that death happens. And the word of God says Adam and Eve went, got it, understand that. Lots of trees, lots of fruit, lots of potential to realize, I won't touch that. And then enter the villain. Enter Satan in the form of a servant. Not servant, serpent, who comes in and starts slithering around them and saying, nice trees. Eve's like, they're lovely trees and they're ours. We get to develop them and, and, and develop the fruit of them. He says, did God say that you, you could not control or, or partake or, or, or have responsibility for all of the trees? And she says, oh, no, no, no. And let's read it in Genesis chapter 3. He says, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it, seize it, control it, or you'll die. You will not surely die, the serpent says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. The word God there, Elohim, means ruler or judge. The word knowing is de'ath, to judge, determine, decide, or to discriminate. He says, hey, did God say that you can't eat from any of the trees? Oh, no, we can eat from all of them. Everything. Just one. He said, don't touch. Don't become the judge of deciding what's right and what's wrong. And the devil goes, ha, 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 yes, I know. And you know why he doesn't want you to have that? Because the moment you control that, you're God. You're king. You determine what you want to do. You determine what's right and wrong, what's good and evil, what I should do and should do. When you do that, you go, well, you know what? If I want to do this, I'm going to do it. If it feels good, I'm going to do it. If I feel that or want that or do that, well, I'm going to, do, I'm going to determine that. He says, the day that you get that control, you're like God. And Eve went, get me that apple. Adam's like, get me that mango steen. I want to be like God. And in that very moment that they seized control of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they went and picked, not a piece of fruit, but the keys. The keys. In our day and age, this is a much better image of what really they seize control of. Whoever holds the keys of the kingdom determines, well, I'll do this, I'll do that. Did you know that's the issue of society at the moment? It's the issue of you and I. It's 
the continuum of Adam and Eve. People are like, oh, well, why do I take the blame for what Adam and Eve does? Well, no, I take the blame not just because of my, my innate character inherited from my ancestors, but my willingness, my self-will that wakes up every morning going, you know what? I'd like to be in control of what's right and wrong, what I should do and shouldn't do. I want to hold the keys. I want to open the doors I want to open. I want to lock the doors I want to lock. It's the innate issue of all of mankind. It's the self-will versus his will. And in that moment in the garden when mankind said, we want to actually be in control, you read every newspaper, you listen to every agnostic or atheist, you listen to everyone who, who rails against God and who he is, it centers around one thing. I want to do what I want to do. And in doing that one thing of taking control of, of that area where I'm now Lord of that, I lose everything else. I lose everything else. One of my all-time favorite authors, a man by the name of E. Stanley Jones, who wrote in the 1960s a tremendous book called The Unshakable Kingdom and the Unchanging Person. He said these words, here we come to the crux of the blocks to the kingdom. All else is marginal. This one thing is central. All else is symptom. This is disease. It was so when Jesus presented the kingdom as God's total answer. It is so today. The kingdom of self versus the kingdom of God. And strangely enough, self is made by its inner structure for the kingdom of God. And when man opposes the kingdom of God, he opposes himself. He goes on to say, we were never intended to be the center of the universe, to be God. If you try to be God and organize life around you as God, you run against the grain of the universe. The universe just won't back you being God, so you're frustrated. You're made to belong and to belong to the kingdom. Seek that first, and all these things will be added to you. Seek yourself first, and everything, including yourself will be subtracted from you. In the first garden, we can return the screen. Man said, I want the keys to the kingdom. Not only did mankind seize the keys, but they actually submitted themselves to the kingdom of another, to the one, the serpent, the one who actually came and said, this tree is something that you can control. It was the very nature in the devil's heart when he was in heaven as a chief archangel who one day serving God said, maybe it would be good if I could be God. And that same spirit that he then influenced through and channeled through mankind literally meant in that moment that this world was handed over, not from man back to God, but from man to the devil. And the scriptural evidence of that is when in the temptation, the devil came up and said to Jesus, if you would just bow down and worship me, I will give you the kingdoms of this world. Jesus responded with scripture, but he did not dispute the legality or the right of the devil's statement. He didn't say, oh, no, that's a misunderstanding. It was never your kingdom. You don't have control over this world. Jesus said, it is written. 
You see, the devil literally had control, given the keys of the kingdom by those to whom they were given. (laughs) But there's another garden. And I thank God for the second garden. I thank God for the Son of God, for Christ who came who demonstrated what it was to be fully man and fully God. He, he was not 50% God and 50% man. He was 100% man and 100% God, the hypostatic nature of Christ, the union of the divinity and the humanity. And in his place as a man, he came and he demonstrated what a life submitted to the will of God is. Oh, he had expression. He had creativity. He could act in certain ways. He responded. He was moved by emotion. He had dominion and freedom within himself but I only do what I see my father doing. I only follow the values of one who I'm submitted to. But as man, a time came where he needed to go and get the keys back. And so we find ourselves now in another garden, a garden on the eve of the crucifixion that would determine the story of humanity for eternity as to where the kingdom was lost and whether it would ever be recovered. And he finds himself coming into a garden, knowing that the crucifixion that will create the the doorway of salvation so that mankind through forgiveness can come into relationship with God and in that position, back in the garden, submit to lordship. You see, it's the gospel of salvation and lordship. If we confess with our mouth, he is Lord, kurios, one who has authority to rule another and believe in our heart that he was raised from the dead. You see, I thank God that I got saved in a church 43 years ago that preached the gospel of forgiveness and salvation, but also of lordship. And so Jesus, knowing what's about to happen, comes in and people been confused of the garden of Gethsemane for so long because he's there, he's by a, a tree, he's, he's on his knees, he's praying and he says these words. He says, my God, my Father, if there is any way this cup, this vessel, this vehicle, what is about to happen, if there could be another way, if this cup could pass from me, let it be. But nevertheless, Not my will, but your will be done. Nevertheless, people like, oh my God, I know the the crucifixion was horrific. He knew he was about to be beaten and whipped and marked more than any man. No, that wasn't the essence and the cry of his heart. He knew the horror of that. He knew the danger of it. He knew the, the venom of the enemy against him. He knew the suffering that would occur. The thing that he was saying, God, if there's another way, my will desires, my will desires, there's another way, was the reality that to redeem mankind, he had to pay the price of death. Separation. Separation from the presence of God, from his Father. The moment the sins of the world would come upon Christ, in that moment, he knew the Father would have to turn away. For the first time in eternity, he would be separated from God and his presence. And he's like, no, 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 no. I don't want that. I don't want that. And if there's any way that this redemption can take place for mankind, please let it be. But nevertheless, 
Not my will, but your will be done. He prayed it twice. He resonated and heard from heaven. There is just one way. And he said, let it be. On a cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, why are you apart from me? But in a garden, he returned the keys. He returned the keys. And on behalf of all mankind, the word of God speaks about the first Adam, the last Adam. The first man who in a garden says, I want to be Lord. I'm in control. The second Adam, Christ, the son of God says, no, I return the keys into death and hell. Took the keys of death and hell, brought them back and put them back where they belong. And then said, now you go and do likewise. You see, the reason the gospel says every person on this planet has the ability to become sons and daughters of God and in relationship with God again as it was in the beginning is because of the one man who put the keys back on behalf of all mankind who now by their own self-will have the opportunity to come and say, God, I return the keys. When we ask people, would you want to receive Jesus? We're saying, do you want the Saviour who can actually deal with sin in just one moment of grace to enable you to be present with God and reach your hand into the pocket and decide whether you put the keys back or whether you hand them over. And so the king and I is a daily decision. It's a decision that challenges us because it's not just the once and only determination of God be my Lord. It's a how do we live that out? And I've just got to be honest with you. It's not easy. Because this self-will wants to react against his will. And we all go, oh, long live the king. Jesus is my king until we hear what the rules and regulations of kingship are. Submit, obey, do this, do that, give that, serve there. Submit to that. We're like, ah, it becomes a daily thing. And so everyone believes there's a simple answer. The way you surrender your will is to use your will and your determination to surrender your will. Nah, I almost need like a buzzer sound. Wrong answer. How do you use your will to overcome your will? See, the battle is whose will is in control. Not my will, but yours be done, said God. Adam and Eve and every one of us. Not your will, but my will be done. So what is it? What is the factor? What is the effect? What is the one thing? that will enable this human will on a daily basis to say, not my will, but yours. It's not willpower. It's not discipline. Those things fall far too short. There's only one thing. And in the last few minutes, I want to tell you what it is with the most abstract title, because it's not only a tale of two gardens, it's a tale of two cows. Moo. Cows. Martin, what do you mean? There's a story in the Word of God that illustrates more than any other what is the one factor that will enable us on a daily basis to literally live and express, not my will, but yours be done. There was a box in Israel called the Ark of the Presence, the Ark of God's Covenant, not an ark, a boat, but a container. And in it was the presence of God localized, manifest for the people of Israel. God is bigger than a box, but his manifest localized presence was there. And if you read the Old Testament, whenever the Israelites had the box, honored the box, 
lived around the box of his presence. They had success, victory, and everything. But one day the Philistines came in. They defeated Israel. And the first thing they did, 1 Samuel, we're told in chapter 6, is they stole the box. They carried it back to Philistia, to a pagan, ungodly nation, put it in their capital, put it in their temple, shouting, victory, we've defeated the Israelites. We've captured their secret weapon. We've got the box of his presence. The next morning, they get up and they walk to the temple where they put the box and all the stone idols have fallen flat on their face, facing the box. They're like earthquake. They lift them back up. Must have been an earthquake. They go in the next morning, the same thing has happened. This time, they're broken. Then curses and, and terrible things start to happen. The Bible, by the way, is sanctified, not sanitized. It tells it as it is. It says that there were these whole plagues that came through, including a plague of, of tumors of the bottom hemorrhoids. Oh my gosh. It just says it like it is. And they found having the box a real pain in the neck. A real pain in the... And one of the wise men said... It's the box. That's what's affecting our temple. That's what's affecting our health. That's why all these plagues of rats and mice are everywhere. We've got to get rid of the box. And then they're like, no, no, no. Because if this really is God's presence or, or the thing that gives the favor to Israel, if it goes and travels and leaves us, we lose that. So they just scratched their head and said, what do we do? And more time went on and worse things happened. So one day they said, I know how to test it. This wise man steps forward. He says, if this is really God's presence, then I know how we can find out whether or not we should keep it or not. He said, go and get two milsh cows. Everyone say milsh cow. It means a cow that has just given birth to a calf but has not weaned it yet. And get the two milch cows and, and, and don't tie them up. Just leave them freestanding and put a cart on them, on them, yoke a cart to them. And then tie up, tie up, restrain their two calves. You know, when it comes to human will, they say the will to live is powerful, but the greatest will is the maternal instinct. I would rather face a couple of MMA UFC cage fighters than an angry mother who thinks she's about to lose her child to someone. There's nothing stronger. A bear with a cubs, you picture it. They tie up and restrict these two calves. They just leave the two milch cows standing and they position the cart and the cows on the road back to Jerusalem. Just sitting there, don't touch it. Then they go get the box. They get the presence of God. And they say, just put it on the cart and take our hands off and see what happens. Oh, those cows ain't going nowhere. You put a box on the back, you can put anything. Put some gold on the back, put some food, put a nice tub of KFC, put some nice sashimi, anything that is naturally a, a desire for hunger, for food, for whatever. Maybe even life itself, they're not abandoning those two calves. And they tie the calves up, they put the two cows, they put the yoke, and they set the presence of God on the cart. And the Bible says the cows immediately start to bellow and bellow and bellow and then take another step and another step 
and another step. And whilst their calves stay restrained, they cannot overcome what they now have to do. You see, a greater thing has come that's affected their will. The presence of God, the carrying the presence of God. They're like, I don't want to do this, but I know I will. I don't want to do this, but I'm compelled. I don't want to do this, but... I've got to, got to, got to do this. And the Bible says the Philistines in shock and amazement just watched as the cows moved all the way up the road to Beth Shayamash and all the way back to Israel, bellowing as they went. And we read the story and go, oh, interesting story about a couple of cows. No, no, no. It's the presence effect. How does the human will submit to God? I've tried different ways. I've failed many times. Oh, I'm just going to decide to do it. I'm, 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 I'm going to be I'm religious. I'm going I'm to know what's right and wrong. And say, God, I'm going I'm to determine to do that. I'm going to use my... No, 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 no. It gives grace to the humble. And I've only found in life in 40-something years of walking with Jesus, ups, downs, successes, mountaintops, a few valleys, some nasty ones, that the one thing when my will wants to say no to God the only thing that can make me come into alignment is His presence. And so today is not about a theory. Watching at home, watching wherever you are in online church here in this wonderful auditorium here in Auckland, this is not a theory. It's not an oh, interesting teaching. It's like, this is the King and I. How does this apply to me? Because of the kingdom of God, if, if I can submit, the Bible says everything else gets added. Everything comes into right order. The, the, the radical passionate pursuit of the reign of God in my everyday life can't just be God just do it just do it it's got to be God I want your presence what does the word of God say where his presence comes from praise he inhabits the praise and worship of his people his presence comes when two or three are gathered in the midst you know you talk about coming to church or being in a connect group or being with a fellowship of other believers or in a morning like this in church and you're like oh yeah I know two or three gathered God said no no you, you don't get that I didn't get it for so long. I'm like, oh my goodness. So what you're saying, God, is that when more than one of us is together, something happens, the localized presence of God. Oh yeah, but God's with me. Yeah, God was everywhere, but He manifested and localized in a box. And the people of Israel had success. When we are in here, when we're planted in the house of the Lord, when we gather together, there's something happens when two or three are gathered. God says, I'm there, my presence. That's why, and I'll convince you, like I convinced myself, because when I think about all those moments, most significant moments in my life where I was able to go, not my will, but yours. The call of God to do this or do that or surrender this or surrender that. Oh my gosh, it was in meetings like this. It was in times when I was praying with friends. It was in those gatherings together, the conference, the meeting. Oh my goodness, it, it's, it's not just emotion. His word brings us presence. Praise and worship brings us presence. Fellowship brings us presence. Seek Him brings His presence. We can't determine I'm gonna do this and surrender my will, but if we seek Him, Father, I wanna seek You. He says, you'll be found. I'll come, I'll turn up. Thanks for listening to this week's message. If you have never entered into a relationship with Jesus, we want you to know that He loves you very much. So much that He died on the cross for all of your sins that stood between you and God. If you would like to make a decision to follow Jesus today, all you need to do is to repeat this prayer. 
Dear God, I come to you in the name of Jesus. I admit that I'm not right with you, and I want to be right with you. I ask you to forgive me of all of my sins. I believe with my heart and confess with my mouth that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of my life. Thank you for saving me and making me your child. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, or if God has done anything in your life because of this podcast, we would love to know. Email us at testimony at kingdomcity.com.